This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. My name is Emma Partridge, and I'm sitting here digitally with Dr. Iftene, an associate professor at Schulich School of Law and the associate director of the Health Law Institute. Dr. Iftene's research interests are interdisciplinary, focusing on Canada's penitentiaries and prisoners' rights, with a unique focus on issues related to aging while incarcerated. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that I am located and recording this episode on what is now called Toronto. This land is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. This land is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. Dr. Iftene is joining us from the ancestral, ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. I also wish to recognize that Indigenous people are uniquely and disproportionately impacted by the carceral system, the topic that we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Ftene, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great, thank you. So, I obviously just told our listeners a little bit about uh, your background, but could you tell us a bit more about your research interests and what you're currently working on? I have been doing a lot of research over the last decade at the intersection of criminal justice and health issues. And right now I'm, uh, I've started uh, a bigger project that looks into sentencing of older adults, uh, how factors such as age and health and um, you know, foreseeable aging or death, dying in prison, influences the sentencing decisions and what's the judicial discourse around that. Great. And as you say, you've been doing this work for a long time, almost a decade. Um, But did you notice in the summer of 2020 when these calls to defund the police and calls for prison abolition grew a bit louder in terms of uh, coming into the mainstream media a bit more? Do you feel like around that time you noticed a shift within the legal profession in how they talked about topics such as prisoners' rights and prison law? There's certainly been a significant increase both in the in the number of people that are doing this kind of work. Um, um, and also there has been a change, I think, in the focus that their, their work has. And there have been a number of catalysts, I think, to that. And I think that uh, certainly the increase of the public interest, and um, I think we're seeing a lot of, not only, but um, a lot of young lawyers or um, very recent uh, law graduates that, um, come into the workforce with this particular interest in prison law, but also already have an abolitionist bent, and they are they are defining themselves um, directly or indirectly, and in their work as abolitionists. Right. So, given those changes, given the increased attention um, in different lawyers' work and the increased number of lawyers doing that sort of work, do you feel like there's still this uh, reaction that prison abolition? is too radical a goal? Do you feel like that's sort of the knee-jerk response of the legal profession now? I think that probably you're right in the in the sense that um, there used to be a time where, you know, individuals would be, especially professionals of any kind, would be very concerned in, in framing themselves as abolitionists or their work as abolitionists. Um, I think it, it was seen that abolitionism, abolitionism as this um, I- idealistic thing that going to hurt your credibility as a professional if you're going to come and say that, you know, oh, well, 
I'm, I'm sort of, I think that we can actually live without this. Um, but I don't think that, uh, I, I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that, I think that people are less concerned about that. And I think that, um, the role that the legal professionals can have by, by framing their work in an, in an abolitionist uh, cloth can actually also increase the, um, the visibility of the abolitionist movement and actually move it uh, forward. So I think that, you know, it is a cycle. I think it's a circle almost like um, uh, the way we are seeing abolitionists today is giving making people more comfortable to speak out and use the tools that they have to advance it, but also um, uh, having these people involved and use it in this way also helps uh, uh, increase the strengths of the movement. Yeah, definitely. It, it definitely seems to be the case that um, it's a little more mainstream to talk about these issues and it's a bit more uh, acceptable. Given that, do you feel like you've seen many changes um, to the system that have given you hope or, or kind of moved the needle in, in the abolitionist direction? So I think that policy and, and uh, legislation wise, we still have a lot of work to do. But I think some of the positive changes that we have seen are coming out of um, this renewed attention and conversations that we see in academia, the engagement of um, various social group with these issues. Um, and also we have seen some progress litigation wise. So, so those are certainly also helping move the conversation along. There also has been in the last 10 to 15 years, some regressive measures in my opinion, you know, that include more stuff on crime legislation that includes uh, an abolition of um, the faint hope clause, which basically doesn't allow individual serving life to um, apply for parole after 15 years. Um, we have seen uh, harsher uh, punishment, longer sentences, consecutive life sentences, which is probably one of the more devastating uh, things since uh, the abolition of capital punishment, right? Um, so, so we've seen a lot of negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So for you as a lawyer, what does the word abolition mean to you? I feel as though there's a lot of confusion about what abolition actually looks like and what that word means. So what does that word mean to you in in the context of your work? I'm sure that some people would see it as a purely activist uh, uh, um, endeavor. Um, I, 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 As a movement, I think is no different than other uh, schools of thought that are influencing the work that we are doing and are setting the bar or are setting the standard for um, for the goals of the work that we are doing. I think it's also a way of tributing meaning and uh, scope to the work that one does. Yeah, definitely. That's a great way of putting it. And uh, you mentioned that the system itself hasn't been changing in a way that's been giving you hope, but do you feel as though the public attention um, and the mainstream discourse surrounding abolition has provided any positive changes? And is there anything the public can do to keep those conversations moving? There are certainly a, a whole bunch of things, I think, that, you know, again, are good and are positive in that they are bringing more visibility to these issues. And they include, you know, um, the interest that law schools have in these. Like, I really am seeing a significant less concern around, um, you know, the black letter law. Oh, this is real law. Whereas all these social issues are not real law. So we don't really teach them in school. Or we don't really worry about them in school. 
I think that, um, and I guess the distinction remains uh, to a certain degree, but um, definitely when I started um, on this path 10 years ago or 11 years ago, um, there were two law schools that were offering an imprisonment course. One of them was Queens and one of them was uh, UBC. And now we are seeing them, uh, these courses have proliferated across Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but also, I think the media discourse has changed very interestingly. I think during COVID, we have seen a shift in the media discourse because, of course, media has been very interested in, in selling and generally this crime is something that's always been you know, on the forefront. So the reporting on crime has not necessarily always been very responsible. But in terms of the prison system itself, I'm not sure if there is anything that's giving me hope. The changes that have occurred have a lot of times been extremely slow to come by. Um, a lot of times they have come under threat of legal action. Um, their implementation has often been um, highly problematic. Um, I think the structured intervention units uh, and the way they have been implemented is but one example of how um, even things that are being you know, framed as progressive actually um, may, you know, are not a meaningful change. No, definitely. Um, so for those who don't know or might not know exactly, what are structured intervention units and how are they problematic? So the in 2018, um, the British Columbia uh, courts have, uh, have, have decided in a case that was brought forward by the BC Civil Liberties and John Howard Society that segregation, which it means the uh, solitary confinement essentially of uh, individuals in uh, for for uh, over 22 hours a day with very little activity and very little interaction with uh, other humans um, is actually unconstitutional on a number of grounds. And um, they basically ruled that certain categories of people can never be placed in solitary confinement. They also held that um, there needs to be uh, some form of limitation to the amount of time one spent uh, in these uh, places. So anyway, so those cases have sort of uh, were basically um, appealed by the federal government and they were making their way to the Supreme Court. But the government probably saw and understandably so that, you know, they are unlikely to be successful in their appeal. So what the government said, said, okay, well, if solitary confinement is unconstitutional because of all of these grounds, then we're just going to do away with solitary confinement. We're just going to, you know, we're just going to uh, not have solitary confinement, and then we're never going to have to worry about these decisions again. But we do need something instead. So what they did, they created these structured intervention units, which are basically ranges where you place, they said, individuals uh, who would otherwise be placed in solitary confinement. But they said that they are very different in that the individual is going to be allowed out of their cell for four hours instead of, well, nothing or two. And um, they will have at least two hours of uh, minimum contact, meaningful human contact with somebody. So they said, you know, the international definition of solitary says that 22 hours or more is... Um, is falls under the definition of solitary, we're going to say that these people will be locked up for 20 hours. So then it's not solitary confinement. And none of the rules that have come out from the BC and Ontario courts are applicable to this regime. 
Now, a lot of the people at the time raised concerns that this is just window dressing and that, you know, maybe the difference between two hours and four hours is not actually that great. And that, in fact, it's really important what you're doing during those hours, what's the support people are given, um, and how much time they spend there, right? Because they said that because uh, these are not solitary confinement, you can basically keep people indefinitely in those ranges. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the discourse around uh, police wearing body cameras. And for a long time, uh, body cameras were seen as sort of a, a step or a progressive step um, in response to the calls against police brutality. But um, of course, that's just funneling more money into, into the police that communities now don't get. So we have to be so, so careful of these kinds of reform efforts, um, which is why I'm glad we're talking about abolition today. But I just before we wrap, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your work. And I know that you do a lot of research at the intersection of health and the incarceration of sick and aging individuals. Do you feel as though that topic is adequately taken up and discussed by the public, or do you think more attention needs to be paid in this area? Yes, I think I think that um, I don't think that we are really paying attention to that because um, uh, that's not something that we normally associate with prison and criminal justice. We tend to take health and any other kind of human angle out of the criminal justice discussion, right? Um, it's much harder to um, to render and to um, execute punishment on individuals if you regard them as humans, and it's much uh, it's much harder, it's much easier to do that if you don't consider the things that are in fact making them deeply human. And uh, so, so we we don't really see that, and I I think that it's it's really the byproduct of a very punitive and and risk adverse society and system, you know, that fails to understand how health and well-being are essential to a crime-free society. When we talk about um, criminal justice, we focus on the things that those people have done, not on the things that have brought them there or the things that, um, or how the criminal punishment impacts them and as a result, their future actions, right? So, we sort of tend to think of those uh, as as different, so it's not very interesting. Like it's so much more interesting in the media to report on somebody uh, killing this many people or on a prison riot than it is to report on these individuals being extremely sick in prison, right, and not receiving the basic care that they need. I think it's you know people just don't see the correlation between public safety and public health. When we talk about public health, we we think about our well-being as people in the community and our safety and our access to medication. Um, when we think about public safety, we think of keeping people in prisons. But the reality is that, um, that they overlap, right? And that um, prisons are public health disasters for so, so many reasons. And people are not staying in prison forever. They are coming out and they are, um, their health is deteriorated from the experience of incarceration. We are, we are discounting the impact that the experience of one individual in prison has on the community to which he returns or she returns, right? Um, so failing to understand that um, is actually not advancing. If our goal is public safety, 
then we are failing at that miserably by discounting health and, uh, you know, humane dimensions from the conversation. Absolutely. I agree. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Dr. Abtani. It's been wonderful speaking to you. I hope everyone listening learned something and we will see you back here again soon. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.